0: Good morning. There was a poem that my mother used to quote to me when I was a kid. And I thought of one section of this poem this week as I was preparing this lesson for today. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard it. I don't know if it's famous or not. I only, I only heard it growing up. But one section of it said, ladies and gentlemen, beggars and tramps, cross-eyed mosquitoes and bull-legged ants, I stand before you, not behind you, to tell you something I know nothing about. That's how I feel when I preach on Mother's Day. In fact, in the first service, I arranged to have the fire alarm go off, but uh, they handled it too quickly, so... So here we are. But seriously, you know, the the challenge of Mother's Day is that there are always those people who want some sort of um sweet and syrupy sentimental message about um about how wonderful mother was. Um and and I get that, but I need to acknowledge that there are other people that find Mother's Day a very difficult day. There are young women in our church who are battling infertility. So Mother's Day for them is a day of sadness and silent questioning. One in five women today are, will, will struggle at some point in the process of trying to be pregnant. And so uh, Mother's Day is a particularly difficult day there. There are women here who have given up a child to adoption because of a particular season or set of circumstances that they were in. So Mother's Day is a day of anguish and, and wondering about what might've been. There are women who have had an abortion and Mother's Day brings guilt or mostly sorrow. There are those who have lost their mothers. And so on this day, it. They struggle with depression, with, the, with grasping that, uh, the reality of that loss. There are mothers who have lost a child physically or through some sort of emotional estrangement. And so Mother's Day is a day of hurt and even anxiety. There are those who did not have godly mothers. And so Mother's Day is a day of resentment and anger. I recognize all of that. And yet, when we come to the Word of God, even if you are in one of these categories, you must recognize that it is a good thing to hold up the ideal, to see that which we should be striving for, even though uh, so many of our personal experiences fall short of that. So this morning, I want to look at um, the first chapter of Samuel, and and we'll get into, into this chapter, but you can go ahead and turn there. Um One of my hobbies is our presidential biographies. I have read the biography of every u s president and some of the presidents i 've read more than more than one or two and it 's fascinating when you look at the men who have served in that highest office in the land and you see the stories that are that they have in relationship to their mother. James Garfield, for example, who was assassinated um, he had such a a strong bond with his mother for a lifetime that he wrote her a letter uh, from his deathbed. Teddy Roosevelt wrote to his mother every week while he was in the Oval Office. Franklin Roosevelt, you might be surprised to know that he wouldn't go to school without his mother, and the school was Harvard University. Harry S. Truman conducted presidential business from his dying mother's bedside when she was 94 years of age. But my favorite story is from Dwight Eisenhower. Before he was president, Eisenhower was the supreme commander of Allied forces in Europe during World War II. And it is said that in uh, in the middle of World War II, Eisenhower stole a top-secret directive so that he could send his mother a Mother's Day card from the battlefield. The Bible, more so even than the presidents, give us a variety of stories about the overwhelming influence of strong and godly mothers. It is an emphasis that our modern society basically ignores to a great extent. Mothers have been given the line in our culture that um, if you if you are uh, focused on a family, if you give your life or a season of your life to the raising of children that you've sort of not been true to yourself you could be so much more. I'm here to deliver a countercultural argument that you can never be more than when you are advancing the kingdom of God into the next generation by the influence that you have as a godly mother. I'm beginning a teaching series today. We've finished the Gospel of John, and so uh, for the next several weeks, I'm going to do a brief series that I'm entitled Advancing the Kingdom. Today I want to look at how we advance the kingdom through being a godly mother. Uh, We'll see also as we get uh, a few weeks down the road, I'll, I'll, I'll show you how being a father can advance the kingdom. But there are other other lessons in this series, but it, because this is the year of advance for Evergreen, I want to teach about the ways that we advance the kingdom of Christ. Uh, I'm going to teach one lesson on, on what it means to be the church and how uh, our roles that we play individually and corporately through the church is a way that we advance the kingdom of God. Next week, I'm going to preach uh, a message that that I really want to encourage you to, to, to be present for. Um, next week, I want to lay out a vision that is not new. It goes back 23 and a half years. In fact, it was included in the very first sermon I ever preached as, as Evergreen got off the ground. But next week, I want to lay out a way for us to advance the kingdom that God has, has put heavy on my heart. And, uh, and, and this is a time for a major new advance emphasis in our church. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. We've got a lot going on around here. Yes, we do. Uh, We're building a $9 million building right now. And the church is growing. And we have almost more to do than, than we can handle. Isn't it really kind of a bad time to start a whole new major emphasis and line of ministry? Absolutely it is. And I told God that. That conversation didn't really go the way I would thought it would go, um, but next week I'm going to lay out uh, what it is that God is calling us to. It's not a new call, but it's a new time, and it's time. So join me next week for that because it's going to be uh, a significant moment in the life of our church. Today I want us to look at how we advance the kingdom uh, through the role that God gives to some of us as a mother. And I want you to find your way to to Samuel, and and we will look at at this. this There's a couple in the first chapters of Samuel. The husband's name is Elkanah, and his wife's name is Hannah. Now, this couple is unique in a couple of ways, one of which is that they were deeply devoted to pursuing their faith, to worshiping the true God, and to raising a child to have a strong faith, a commitment to the true God. The reason that's so out of the ordinary is because when we go back and see the context in which they lived, what we discover is that Israel was not, um, Israel was not being faithful as a culture in this time. The book of Samuel occurs right on the heels of the book of Judges. If you've ever read through the book of judges what you what you find is that Israel is less responsible, less uh, focused less uh, honoring to God than at any point in their in their young history. They have really come to a place where the the refrain of the Book of Judges over and over and over again is that every man did what was right in his own eyes it's impossible to have a nation that advances and remains strong if everybody is is almost in an anarchist way doing whatever it is they think they should do. Okay? The parallels between our nation today and where Israel was in that moment of history are disturbing how close they are. But here was a family in that generation where the worship of God was being neglected, where the training up of children in in the faith was being unattended. Um, Here's a family that gave themselves completely to the cause of, of, of the Lord. And I want you to see just what an impact of advancing the kingdom we have here. The opening verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1 introduce Elkanah, uh, and give his um, genealogical background. But he also mentions his wife, um, Hannah. And, and, and let me just, this is a side note. This is a story of infertility, of a woman struggling because she doesn't seem to be able to fulfill the very thing that is most deeply felt in her spirit. And as she's um, upset about this, in in chapter 1, verse 8, then Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, this is just a side note, okay? This is not a part of the sermon but husbands if if you're in a situation of of infertility struggle right now, I know you mean well, but do not say something like this: <laughs> Well, can't you just be happy with me yeah that's not that's not the issue it's not that she 's not happy being married it's that there is an impulse that is. That, that runs so deep that it can't just be sloughed off. It can't just be ignored. And Elkanah means, well, he's trying to comfort his wife, but, but this is a terrible example, okay? Don't, don't say anything like that. Verse 9, let's, let's just read and, and we'll see how this story unfolds. Verse 9, Then Hannah got up after eating and drinking in Shiloh, now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Shiloh, by the way, was the place that they went to for worship. Um, Eli was the priest there. She, Verse 10, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Now, it, there's no sense, there's no idea here that she's bitter at God. But there is a bitterness that just comes from the intense desire that is unfulfilled and the deep longing and hurt that she feels because of this struggle. She prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, Lord of armies, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your bondservant and remember me and not forget your bondservant, but will give your bondservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now... She's not just suggesting that she won't cut his hair. This is related to what the Old Testament calls a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was essentially a deeper commitment to God, a a a a more serious uh, commitment. So what what she's essentially saying here is that if you will give me a son, I will if you will give a son to me as a gift, I will gift him back to you, and I will lead him and raise him up so that he has a most serious faith and, and a determination to follow you. This is a powerful prayer from a mother who is saying, Lord, when this gift comes to me, I'll receive it as a gift. But I will raise him. I will train him. I will teach him. I will, I, I will help him develop a faith and I will hand him back to you. And his faith will be on display for everyone who knows him. That's what's behind this verse. Verse 12. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were quivering, but her voice was not heard at all. So Eli thought that she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, "'How long will you behave like a drunk? Get rid of your wine.'" But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman despairing in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your bondservant a useless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your request that you have asked of Him. And she said, Let your bondservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, she hasn't seen that desire satisfied yet, but she's no longer sad because she has, um, she has laid it again before the Lord. And, and for that moment, there is a real sense of contentment that God is the one in charge, that He has this in His hands. She returns home from that annual time of worship and it says that, that, that she uh, did in fact conceive. You pick it up in verse 20, it says, It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Now, let's talk about this, this process because one of the things, one of the lessons that this passage in particular teaches us is that godly mothers pray for their children but they pray for their children even before they're born. A mother prays almost from the moment of conception, and that's really what is implied in verse 20, where it mentions that she gave the child the name Samuel because I have asked him of the Lord. Women have, uh, in a sense, a nine-month head start on men. Now, it's not that husbands don't know that the wife is expecting a baby. But there's no way for a man to have the same connection with that child that a, that a mother has uh, from the very beginning. I remember when, when my first daughter was born, and uh, it was a long, hard day, but I won't go into that because really my wife worked a lot harder than I did. Uh, but it started early. We were there all day. Baby's finally born. Late in the evening, I'm there. I get home. It's late. The house is empty because mother and daughter are still at the hospital, and I'm exhausted. All right, I should have laid down and gone straight to sleep. I laid down in that bed, and my mind went, bing. I mean, I thought things like, I wonder how much a wedding costs. (laughs) What are we going to do about college expenses? I mean, I was just... I was going 90 to nothing because while I knew, I knew for nine months that we were having a baby for, from the father's side, it's when that baby arrives that it all hits you like a ton of bricks. It's like, oh, my stars. I mean, my world just got rocked and it's never going away. <laughs> Mothers have a different approach. You see, they've had the knowledge, the same knowledge that dad has had for nine months but they have something different. I mean, they know that baby by heartbeat, by movements, by kicks, and 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 by hiccups. Hiccups. There's just a bond there that that gives a woman a, a runway on this relationship, and it's a remarkable experience. The idea here is that Hannah. Um, uh, with every, with every kick, with every hiccup, with every uh, reminder of what was coming, she found herself praising God, pleading with God, praying for this little one. When a woman cuddles that baby for the first time after the birth, there is already an instinctive connection that never goes away. And I think prayer heightens that maternal experience. She not only prayed for him before birth, but she prayed for him habitually. Go over to the second chapter. We're going to pick and choose some verses that are, that are related to, to their family situation. Uh, let me tell you the rest of the story though. Uh, what we're going to see is that at the right time, um, she's going to raise this child to, to the point where she will fulfill her vow by taking him and leaving him um, with the priest to do uh, to be in service to God. Now we'll talk about that, but but I want to I want to emphasize the habitual prayer for her. Look in chapter two, beginning in verse eighteen. It says, "Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy, wearing a linen ephod, and his mother would make for him a little robe and bring it up to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice." Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she requested of the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord indeed visited Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. That's the rest of the story. But look at the final verse verse 21. And the boy Samuel grew up before the Lord. She would take him clothing that she had handmade during the course of the year and when it was her time to go for the for the annual celebration of worship they would travel to Shiloh and she always had these this robe that was a material expression to Samuel of her daily prayers and thoughts on his behalf listen uh, uh, let me tell you something if you're particularly if you're a teenager um Don't ever walk in on your mother praying for you, because it will melt your heart. St. Augustine was converted in the year 386, and he became uh, one of the most influential theologians of the ancient church. He wrote the first true spiritual autobiography, a, a book called Augustine's Confessions. And in the book, he tells his story, and his early years of life, he was a complete heathen. I mean, he was a libertine. Um, He was involved in in everything that, that was physically and sexually gratifying. But he had a godly mother whose name was Monica, and he talks about her consistent praying for him over the course of his life, but he talks specifically about a moment when he stumbled into her prayers and heard her praying on his behalf. And he said it pierced his rock-hard heart because he realized what a shame he was as a son, first to his mother, but also to God who created him. Augustine makes his way to Christ and becomes one of the most influential theologians in the first 500 years of the church. But we remember the name of Monica, his mother, because of the role that she played in advancing the kingdom by producing an Augustine who would have such extensive influence. I mentioned that godly mothers recognize that their children are gifts from God. I wanna explore that a little bit. In in verse 20, we saw that she said, she, she named him Samuel because I have asked for the Lord." Hannah understands that this child is a gift from God, and she actually gives him a name that was to be for her a continual reminder that God had answered her prayers. Now we see that some, I, I, when we do parent dedications here at Evergreen, we ask parents if there's a backstory to, to the names that they've chosen for their children. And, and sometimes it's really fascinating because it's a biblical name sometimes, it's a character or, or something in, in God's word that has been particularly meaningful. Uh, sometimes it's a family name and it, and it comes from a, a great and godly influence. Uh, but I love that idea of, of choosing names with real intentionality. I mean, that's what we have here. She selected the name Samuel because, the, because Samuel's very existence, his, even as a, as a toddler learning to walk and, and, and running around and, and climbing on things and doing all the things that toddlers did, even when she corrected him, she called him by a name that said, God has given you to me as a gift. That is a powerful reminder because we need to to come to the place where we understand just that fact that God has given us a gift in the children that He's he's called us to. Now, look in in chapter 1, verse 22. Well, let's read a little bit more. Verse 21. Then the man Elkanah went up with all of his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go until the child is weaned, then I will bring him, so that he may appear before the Lord and stay there for life. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you, stay until you have weaned him, only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman stayed and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull, one ephah of flour, and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Eli. Now, let me talk to you about these passages because she says, I'm not going to go because I'm, I'm, still, I'm still at the stage of, I haven't weaned the child. There's, there's a lot of work. We were at a restaurant here recently and, uh, and there was a family sitting at a, a booth just within my eyesight and over to my side. And it was um, a mother and a father and four children, four little children. And it was like, I mean, it was just, it was like dinner and a show, <laughs> right? Because, because here, you know, just getting orders from everybody. What do you want? 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 Do you want this? Do you want that? What do you want? What do you want? So they finally get ordered between uh, just watching the evening. By the time, you know, everybody's getting the food off their plate into their mouths. The glasses, the, you know, the spills have been cleaned up as the glasses get knocked over. And, you know, I mean, it was exhausting watching this family just have a, a meal. And my first thought was, why would they go out? But my second thought was, it's just like this at home, except she has to clean up. Of course she wanted to go out. And I, it started this whole thing in my, in my mind about how much work it is to raise children. I mean, not just keeping them alive, but, but, but turning them into productive human beings. I mean, it's a lot of hard work. I occasionally run into somebody and they go, yeah, yeah, we don't have children. I just, I just, I just didn't want the work. That boggles my mind. There's not any other aspect of human life that we look at that we that we think, oh, I don't want to do that. It's hard work. I mean, we understand that hard work is something you put into your job. We understand that hard work is something that you put into to keeping up your house. We understand that that everything that we do in life that has value involves hard work. And yet we we have this idea that, that having children should just be like a fairy tale story. No, you give birth to a little sinner. And your task is to civilize that bugger. (laughs) And it's hard work, but it's the most important thing you can do because that's how you advance the kingdom of God into the next generation. In this church, we, um, we are not here to receive your children and give them all of their biblical and theological training. That is not our job. Our job is to come alongside you as parents and to help you, to equip you, to enable you, because you are the primary discipler of your children. Listen, do not drop your kids off here and expect us to turn them into godly people. We simply come alongside and try and reinforce and bolster what, they, what they're getting at home. We have preschool ministry that is the best in the city. We have children's ministry that is unparalleled. We, do, we have ministry for families that have special needs children that is remarkable. We have RAMP. RAMP 56 is our discipleship strategy for fifth and sixth graders. We have fifth and sixth graders who know how to read their Bibles. They know how to journal. They're serious about their faith. We are doing incredible work to raise up the next generation. But everything that we do is designed to be an assistance, an undergirding, a support for what you do. You are the discipler of your children. Don't ever hand that off. Don't ever delegate that to somebody else. You see, we have kids' worship here. And our kids' worship is not just an hour of entertainment. Our kids' worship is worship for children, but it's modeled on exactly what we do in here. I mean, they have a full-fledged Bible uh, lesson that's taught to them from the Word of God. They sing worship songs. They give an offering. They pray. They learn how to do worship. And then we, we, we strengthen what we do in kids' worship because one Sunday a month, the last Sunday of every month, those kids come in here to participate in what they call big church. Now, let me just get real. Let me make you uncomfortable if this is you. It bothers me when I get the occasional report of families who don't come to church on the last Sunday of the month because it's family worship day and their kids have to be in here with them in big church. Well, it's just such a distraction having them here. Yes, yes, it is. It's kind of a distraction from up here on the stage too. But you know what? Your single Sunday experience one Sunday a month can take a back seat to the challenge of passing the faith on to the next generation your kids need you to bring them to church to sit with them to explain what's happening to teach them how to do worship they need that from you you see in this story it says, it says in one of these verses that, um, let's see which one, uh, verse uh, verse 24 of chapter 1. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull, one ephah, a flour, and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Here's the thing. She understood that this child was a gift from God to her, but she also understood that her intention was to make this child a gift back to God from her. And part of the process was she raised him by personal example. When she takes him to worship, she has all the supplies, all the resources necessary to, to bring about a sacrifice. She has the bull, she has the flour, the wine, everything that is necessary so that, she can, uh, so that she can teach him how to worship. Samuel is right there with Hannah, and she is, he's learning how to worship. Because he saw her worship and he heard her pray. I mean, think about this. In in chapter 2, we're not going to read this whole prayer, but the first part of chapter 2 is a, a record of Hannah's prayer when she is there with Samuel the first time. Certainly, he's seated next to her listening to his mother pray. Now, now, listen to what she prays. This is not just a laundry list of of things that I'd like God to do. It's not just uh, the things that that I need to have for me. She is praying out of the the theological depth of her own soul. And Samuel is hearing this. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, "'My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation.'" There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Now, you might recognize chapter 2, verse 2, that's our memory verse as a church, for the month of May. That's the one we've been saying every week in, in our verse. Here she's, uh, Sa- Samuel Here's his mother praying. She's describing God. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. You are our rock. That means you are foundational to us. You are strong. You are unbreakable. You are the one that we can build our lives on. See, he is learning the depths of biblical theology from the mouth of his mother as she prays. We teach children how to study their Bible, how to have a quiet time, how to journal. But listen, don't send your kids to their rooms to have their quiet time, to do their church homework. Set them down at the kitchen table where they do their their quiet time and you open your Bible beside them and you do yours. They need to see you read the word of God. They need to see you in prayer. They need to see you living out the habits and the disciplines of your faith. When I was at First Baptist Church Dallas for a little over a year, I held the position of minister of pastoral care. And there was a part-time retired pastor that served in that area that I was responsible for. And uh, I guess technically on the organizational chart, he he was under me, but... But he was such a great and godly man, I learned a great deal from being around him. His name was Charles McLaughlin. And he gave me a a clip one time, we were talking about variety of things. But he gave me a clip and when his mother died, his father had died when when Charles was, um, was just a boy. And so he was essentially raised by his mother as a single parent most of his life but she was a good and godly woman. And when she died uh, late in life, he inherited um, some of her private things, her Bible, her journals, some things like that. And he read me this clip from, from one of her journals. Uh, and he said that he had always known that his mother was uh, a follower of Jesus and he'd always known that she prayed for him. But it was a real wake-up call one day when he, after she had passed uh, he was reading through her journals, and he found this, uh, this note, note written shortly before Mother's Day in 1939. She's, she's writing her prayer, and she says, I want to thank my Heavenly Father for Charles' sweet surrender. He said, I knew my mom prayed for me, but seeing my name in her journal was, was a real moving moment. I want to thank my Heavenly Father for Charles's sweet surrender. I love my boys, how I love them. I want them to be real kingdom builders, men who stand for truth, honesty, and purity. These are my gifts to Thee, O mighty Father. You see, it's a powerful thing when a mother recognizes that children are a gift from God. But it's an even more powerful thing when she recognizes that it's her responsibility to turn those children back into gifts to God. Now, in the story of Hannah, probably the most common comment that I've heard over the years is that people say, ah, I could never do what Hannah did. I mean, give up my child, hand him over to, 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 to serve in the, in, the, in, the, in the place of worship at Shiloh. I, I could never do that. Listen, let, let, me, let me speak to this for a minute. The only difference between what you and I were called to do as parents and what Hannah does, the only difference is the timing. She simply was required to hand that child back to the Lord earlier. But I want you to understand what parenting means. It means that from the day they were born and we brought them home from the hospital, we have been intentionally preparing them for the day that we send them out. This generation... This generation takes a lot of heat because of the lack of productivity of our of, of our young adults. Statistics tell us that there are more there are more unemployed working age men in this country today than there have ever been in any generation in history. Now you can say well but But unemployment's at an all-time low, uh, apparently. But but see, here's the problem. Unemployment only measures people who are actively working, are actively looking for jobs and can't find one. There is a a missed segment of our young generation that are not being accounted for in unemployment numbers because they're not even looking for jobs. And we say, ah, that generation is worthless. They're not worthless because there's a, there's a conspirator in that crime. And it's a set of parents who haven't pushed them out into the world to live their life. Now see, it's going to get real quiet in here. But I want you to understand how critical this is. I hear people, they, they, say, they say the silliest things. They'll say things like, um, well, you know, he's just not motivated. Well, motivate him. Let me tell you something. My parents had a way of getting me to do stuff. I, I don't understand. I don't understand the idea. Well, I mean, you know, uh, if they're living at your house and they're of age, show them the door. It's called motivation. But see, there's a different problem here on the other end of the spectrum. Well, I just, the world's such a a hard place. I just just can't stand the thought of sending them out. I wanna keep my chicks close to the nest. You have never seen a mother hen sitting on a full-size chicken. because it wasn't supposed to be that way. (laughs) From the time they were born and gifted into your hands, under your care for your responsibility, from that moment, day by day, month, school year, by school year, you have raised them so that you can give them back to the Lord. It's time for them to advance the kingdom In their generation. Here's the thing. This has to happen because it's a part of the process that God has established to carry the gospel from generation to generation. We dedicate ourselves to the raising of our children so that from their earliest memories, they have memories of the house of God. Our children are never too young to learn about God. We give ourselves to the development of their character, their religious training. We, 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 we love it when, when we sit down to eat a meal and it's the child in the high chair that reminds us that we have to pray before we eat. There are shoppers who are weary in life, who leave the grocery store with a, with, a, with a little skip in their step because they interacted with a toddler in someone's grocery basket. Fathers are encouraged at the welcome that they receive when they come home. Mothers are play peekaboo with miniature fingers from their earliest days. We do all of those things. We raise our children to worship God because they teach us daily about His grace. But we do that also so that they can take the lessons that they learn from us and go extend the kingdom into their generation. Turn to the third chapter. I want you to see this. In the third chapter, in the first verse... It says, now the boy Samuel was attending to the service of the Lord before Eli and word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. This is a critical verse to understand because like I said, this period of Israel's history was immediately on the heels of the the judges. In fact, Samuel is really the last judge of Israel and, and really the first prophet of Israel. He he plays that transitional role. His family raised him up in the middle of a generation when spiritual things were not important to the culture in general. The prophets would later have an understanding of the passive judgment of God. In fact, the prophet Amos called it a famine of the hearing of God's Word. What happens is that when when a culture ceases to pursue God, what God does is He withdraws the low-hanging fruit, the the expressions of His Word that are easy to find. Now, there's not a generation where the Word of God is absolutely unavailable. But what He does is He he reserves the blessings of faith for those who are serious enough to go find them, to chase after their devotion to, to the Lord. In Samuel's day, there's there's almost no parallel to Samuel's day and our day, culturally speaking, except this one thing. Samuel and the people of Evergreen, we both live in generations that have lost any sense of pursuing the Word of God. Samuel is a man of God in a godless generation. Now, I want you to see why this is important. Go, toward, go down to the end of chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse um, 19. It says, Now Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fail. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Israel is, is at a low watermark spiritually. They are not being faithful. They are not serving the Lord well. They are not following Him. In that generation, God gave a Samuel. Now, if we could study the entire book of First and Second Samuel, they're, they're in the Hebrew Bible, they're one book. If we, could, if we could study this entire book, what we would find is that these books tell a very fascinating story they tell the story of the monarchy of Israel. Samuel is the one who anoints Saul as the first king over Israel. Samuel is also the one who anoints David, who will eventually be the next king of Israel and and really reign over Israel in what was essentially a golden age as Israel kind of uh, turns back under David to a more faithful uh, following of God. Most of the books of Samuel are written about Saul and David. But before that story, we have the story of Samuel, a godly man who in the course of his life transitioned away from this era of the judges when Israel was so ungodly. And he helped lead Israel back to a place where they began to have uh, a return to the values that God intended them to have. Now, here's the thing. I don't want you to miss this. David, greatest king in Israel's history. Saul, the first king that established the monarchy. Samuel, powerful transitional figure between the eras of the judges into the era of the monarchy. And behind all of it, David, Saul, Samuel. Behind all of it, Hannah. A mother who asked God for a gift. She received that child as a gift and she put in the hard work to turn that gift into a gift worthy of handing back into the hands of God. Frankly, the Israel of the judges is a nation almost ready to implode the story of redemption, the line that produces the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who will take away the sins of the world. From a human perspective, it was in real risk. Samuel is a transitional figure that saves that work of God by by his following passionately, even in a generation that wasn't serious about faith. He follows God passionately and God uses him in an extraordinary manner. But don't forget, it's because he had a mother who was determined to take her faith and instill it in him and then give that child of faith into the hands of God and he literally changed his world. Mothers, we're proud of you. We want to encourage you. But I want you to understand, it is your job to pray for your children, and frankly, that never goes away. Even when they leave the house, you are an intercessor on behalf of your children for the rest of your life. Pray for your children. Lead them by instruction and by example to make the faith their faith. Raise them up to advance the kingdom of God in their life. And then, let them go. Show them the door. Because when you let them go, they come home with grandkids. (laughs) And trust me, that makes all the rest of the hard work worthwhile. Happy Mother's Day. May you be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen.